So, <clears throat> we're taking a break for just a week um, from Pastor Steve's series on what God cannot do. And so, I was trying to figure out what to present this morning, and I was going through some books, and I found an interesting lesson that I drew from this theology book that I'm going to present to you this morning that I think really deals with a topic that is interesting and something for us to consider. Now, this comes from uh, the the book Understanding Theology, Volume 2, by R.T. Kendall. Now, Kendall served in ministry under Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in England. I'm sure you're familiar with Dr. Jones, maybe not with um, uh, Dr. Kendall. Um, But there are some uh, helpful things I found in it. I've not worked extensively in it. But he has this one chapter, chapter 36 of volume 2, called The Divine Tease. And I think it's very interesting. So we're going to talk about that um, this morning. And so the way uh, Kendall introduces this, he talks about this recurring theme that he's, he's found in his studies over the years that he wants to deal with. Um, and he calls it the divine tease. And he says that's, you know, he doesn't know if that's a perfect way to express it, but he can't come up with anything different. And I hope that the title of that is not off-putting uh, to you, because I do think there are, are there's some good truths and some good things that we can draw out that can make us think about this. And of course, we all know what teasing is, right? Teasing can be fun or teasing can be mean, um, but the divine tease is, is, is different. It's one of God's ways of uncovering our motives, our most innermost motives, or as Kendall says, our, our purest motives. Maybe not, and not pure in a, a good, godly, refined sense, but pure as far as it, we're not hiding the motive behind. There's not a, an ulterior motive, in other words. It's a, it's a bare motive. Um, so when God does this, Kendall proposes that God acts in a way that appears to mean the opposite of what God really does. And its purpose is to reveal us, what we feel, what we think, what our innermost being is like. And there was a quote that he uses from another man um, that is, God offends the mind to reveal the heart. And I think there's truth in that. And, And perhaps, you know, as we go to Scripture and we draw it out, you'll see that. So he starts off, he gives... Two examples, and the first is from the Gospels, uh, the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 6. And undoubtedly you're familiar with this incident. And this is what Mark says, chapter 6, verses 47 through 49. Later that night the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on the land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by, but when he saw their walk, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. So Mark reveals something in this instant to us, right? That 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 the Lord 
knew his disciples were out in that boat, that this just wasn't happenstance. He just didn't decide to go for a walk across um, the Sea of Tiberias and just happened to run into them. Um, and he's, it's like he's going to pass them by. Now, they're, they're in a stormy situation. And from what I've, I've read, um, nights can be very treacherous on this inland sea. The winds come up because of its geographical location. Um, winds can come up and they could create uh, tremendous storms. It sounds very much like if you've ever been out to Lake Mead and in the evening when, when, when there's uh, thunderstorms in the desert, you can get really, really rough conditions out on the lake. They're quite treacherous. Sounds very similar. So it looked to them like Jesus was just going to go past them. He wasn't going to help them and that he didn't even notice them. That was the human perception of what was going on. And yet, and yet, Jesus was obviously there for them, right? What other reason would there have been for the Lord to have been there? So he didn't speak to them or get into the boat with them until they cried out to him. So Kendall proposes that Jesus was teasing them, but he wasn't joking. Now, what is... What does Kindle mean by this, this teasing? And this, this does seem, you know, it kind of grinds against me. If it's grinding against you, this idea of Jesus teasing the disciples in a situation like this, I'm kind of in, in agreement with you. But let's, let's go along and see what Kendall's saying because it all really makes sense. But then he shifts, Kendall shifts, and he gives another example from Chapter 24 of Luke's Gospel, and we're all very familiar with this. This is the Emmaus incident on the road to Emmaus. And verses 28 through 29, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. At that stage, the two people on the road to Emmaus, as you know, didn't realize this was Jesus that was walking with them. And yet, it was his intended purpose, his explicit purpose to stay with them for a while longer. So, Kendall proposes again. He was teasing them. It was a test to see if they wanted more information about Jesus himself. So, the divine tease, the definition of this is God set up test by which he sometimes disguises his presence and purpose at first in order to reveal our real feelings. So it's like a divine setup. Jesus set up both of these events. It's not that they just happened. It's not that he saw an opportunity and he took it. He was like, oh yeah, I could use this. No, this, as we know, these were all decreed to occur. Jesus is the one who controls all the storms. So he didn't turn up on the fourth watch of the night accidentally and waited, and, and waited before he came to their rescue. They later realized he was behind everything that happened to them. And on the road to Emmaus, Luke writes, they were kept from recognizing him until their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from sight. So the whole thing was an event that God decreed and, and made to come to pass. God has a way 
of setting us up for these things. And we see this happen, you know, in, in our society, in our culture, in the world. And examples are like uh, um, uh, intelligence agencies or some federal law enforcement agencies are masters at setting people up to get them caught. And they put people in vulnerable positions. God does something similar, but with the purest, of course, motives, the most righteous motives. We're human examples, not always so. But God does it so that our real motives and feelings can be, find out, can be found out. It's always a test to reveal what we are. And, of course, God's not learning anything new about us, is he? He, he knows these things. He doesn't need to test us to see what we're like. He doesn't need to test us to know what we're going to do. It's to let us see for ourselves, and sometimes to let others see what we really are, what our purest inner motives are. And in these things, these examples that that we've looked at, think about this. God disguises his presence and his purpose in these events. He's like his presence. When Jesus walked out on the sea, his disciples thought he was a ghost. Right? So you're not going to... Would you expect a human being to be walking across the water of a sea towards you? No. There's, the, that just doesn't happen. There's no, there's no logical explanation for that, right? It can't be explained scientifically or by human logic. The same thing with the two people on the road to Emmaus. They were kept from recognizing him. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us how they were kept from recognizing, recognizing him, but they just were. God disguises his purpose also. His purpose was to wait until the appointed time to unveil himself. Now, the, the, the hour is a big theme in John's gospel, isn't it? Where Jesus says, it is not yet my hour. You know, when, when, when he is going to be revealed and do his greatest work on earth. And then a time comes when he says, my hour is now at hand. So God decrees everything to occur at a certain time. And that's what we're seeing here. And his purpose in waiting until the appointed time was to see what their reaction would be. And of course, as we said, God knows what their reaction is going to be. First example, would they be willing to take him into the boat? Which they did. If they would urge him to stay with them, and not depart, which they did. So at first, the point of the divine tease is to withhold the Lord's presence and purpose at first. Had the disciples, either at sea or on the road to Emmaus, immediately recognized Jesus, there would not really have been any testing. They would have realized it was their master, it was the Lord. The essential purpose of the divine tease is the testing, the testing of us. Therefore, at first, in these examples, there's, there's no hint that it, that it really is the Lord. So God's up to something in order to show our real feelings. We see this 
in Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4 of that psalm read, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. So the Lord watched the disciples straining at the oars. The wind was high. They were rowing against the wind. He listened on the road to Emmaus to the two people as they lamented the events over the previous days. So these are situations where these disciples are under stress, aren't they? Either stress of physical danger on the sea in in horrible weather, or the stress of trying to understand what has happened to their master on the road to Emmaus, which also there's physical danger involved in that, right? Like they don't know if the Jewish council is going to sick the Roman authorities on all of them. And what happened was unexpected. They did not realize that this was the crowning moment for their master. So the real feelings of the disciples become evident in the end. They become willing to receive Jesus into the boat, and they begged him to stay. It emerged that their hearts were yearning to confess what was true about him. In Matthew's version of the incident on the sea, Jesus walking on the water, they declare, truly, you are the Son of God. And in Matthew's version, remember, this is where Peter tries to walk on the water to, to, to the Lord, right? What's interesting is that I wonder if the disciples thought of this. But the book of Job, very early on in the, in the ninth chapter, verse 8, says, only God alone treads upon the sea. So no one else can walk on the water. Did they think of that verse when, when they saw him? I wonder. We don't know. We're not told that, but it's interesting. And on the, the disciples in Emmaus, they asked each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And remember how Jesus opened up the scriptures to them and showed them from, from Moses and the prophets how he would come and how he would die and rise again. He showed them things that they had never seen before. So basically, the disciples passed the test, right? They did not know how they were being tested at first. And the divine tease, Kendall suggests, is always a disguised test. When the Lord tests us, we do not know at the moment that we're being tested. How many of us can look back at events in our life and realize it was God's hand at play, that we were being tested, that we were being brought through something? And it revealed something to us, didn't it? It didn't reveal something to God like, oh, you know, Brian is, uh, he's an okay guy. He passed this test. God knew that. So why is this an important lesson? The Bible is full of illustrations of the divine tease. These two examples that that I used are just the more obvious. 
And once we grasp the nature of the divine tease, we'll see how much a part of God's nature is to test us in this manner. So we must develop a sensitivity to this, to this divine tease. We must hope and pray to recognize it for what it is as soon as possible. Now I think when we understand the doctrines of grace, it really helps us with this sort of thing, right? And it's not as much of a struggle because we realize God's sovereignty in everything. In the book of Hebrews, it says, they have not known my ways. God says this of the people of Israel. We must learn to know this aspect of God's ways. We're all being tested in this manner from time to time. And Kendall suggests, and I agree with this, probably more often than we actually realize. It's a sobering matter, isn't it? Um, To fail the test is to be the most impoverished. We're talking really about spiritual maturity here, which can be defined partly by how long it takes to recognize the divine tease or God's providence, God's working in our lives, which maybe is a better way to think of it. Um, Not to mention whether we pass or not. Simon Peter soon realized that it was none other than Jesus himself who told the disciples to throw their nets on the other side of the boat at the end of John's gospel, right after the Lord had arisen. um, Simon Peter had denied him three times. They go back to what they knew, right? It's It's like they gave up. It's like, you know, we're just fishermen. Let's go fish. We know how to fish. Maybe we'll be good at that. We haven't been good at this other stuff, you know, this Imagine what Simon Peter's thinking, how he failed. I mean, he's just an abject failure, the misery that man must have been feeling. But then he realizes it's Jesus who told them to throw their nets on the other side of the boat. This sounds very much like what happened at the beginning of of their calling, right? And their net, again, is is filled to overflowing. And this has been a, a setup, a gracious setup by the Lord to restore Peter and for him to be instructed by the Lord to feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. The divine tease is designed to let those off the hook, so to speak, whose hearts are not right anyway. It's not that they're set free from the responsibility of their unbelief. No, that's not... Never the case. Unbelief is a matter for which people will be held accountable for. But God gives immediate, what Kendall calls relief, to some. And he explains this idea, what he's talking about. These people who are given immediate relief are those whose minds are already made up. They're just looking for an excuse, waiting to catch him in something he might say, which comes from... Luke chapter 11. Who was, who was doing that? The Pharisees, the scribes, right? They were just waiting for him to say the right or the wrong thing. We've all been in conversations or in relationships like that, haven't we? Where the other person, it's like, you, I know they're just waiting for me to say the wrong thing, and then bah, the claws come out and they are honest. And it's like you're rolling on the ground wrestling with an alligator or a tiger trying to rip your throat out. That's what they were doing, wanted to do with our Lord. 
So examples of being let off the hook for a while that Kendall gives. First one, Israel in the wilderness. They're in the desert. They're approaching the land of Canaan. And some guys are sent out on a reconnaissance, right, into the land of Canaan. And they come back, and all but two of them, two of these scouts, they return from Canaan with their minds made up, these guys. And in Numbers chapter 13, verse 32, 33, we're told, So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to be, we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. But not everyone thought that, right? There was these two other guys, Caleb and Joshua. Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. Did Caleb think that they could outfight just on their own, these people that they were so fearful of? No, the Lord had told them to do this and had promised that it would be done. Caleb and Joshua were, were faithful to what the Lord had promised and to what the Lord had commanded. But the majority ruled. Israel fails the test here. In the New Testament book of Hebrews, the author writes, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. So it was a setup. God knew what was in their hearts, their unbelief and cowardice, however, was unveiled to everybody else. And interestingly, they were off the hook. They need not press on. They could turn around and go back into the desert. Indeed, even if they did go on, they would have failed. They, they couldn't have done it. They tried afterwards. We read this in Numbers chapter 14. In disobedience to God, they went forward. They were defeated and driven back by the Canaanites and the Amorites. Another way people are let, left off the hook, so to speak, it's those who hated Jesus' words. When Jesus said, I am the bread that came down from heaven... In John chapter 6, the Jews were enraged by this. They needed an excuse not to believe such language. John chapter 6 is full of what's called the hard sayings of Jesus. They were so hard that most of the disciples fell away. The hundreds that had followed Jesus because he's feeding them, right? He's getting all these freebies. Man, we don't have to work. We can relax on the hillside, we can sit in the grass, and the food comes to us. This is the life. But then there's these teachings. And then they're like, and it just, it just, they can't ignore them. It's like uh, human nature and human pride being what it is, they couldn't think, you know what, I'm just going to go along with it because I'm going to get fed. It's like going to a um, timeshare. A timeshare deal where they're going to feed you. <laughs> We've experienced that. I won't tell the story. 
But anyway, we were held, oh, we were almost kidnapped on the, on, uh, down in Mexico. <laughs> Had to shoot my way out. No, just kidding. <laughs> Thought it was going to come to that, but it didn't. Anyway, um, but uh, back to John chapter 6. They found an excuse not to believe Jesus. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Now understand what's implied here. They know Mary and Joseph. What's the situation with Mary and Joseph when it comes to Mary's pregnancy with Jesus? They weren't married, right? What are they implying? They're implying, we know what his mom's like. She was with some man before she was married. Don't know if it was Joseph. Don't know if it was another guy. But (laughs) he's their kid. And now he's saying he's come from heaven, that he's that righteous. He's an illegitimate child. And they knew this all along. It's not like, you know what, I just thought of something. They knew it all along, but they ignored it. Why? Because he was feeding them. They were getting good stuff, good material stuff from him. As long as they were getting those miraculous fish, fishes and loaves, they didn't care that everybody was whispering about this rabbi's illegitimacy. In fact, they even wanted to make him a king. It's like, if we have a king that gives us all this stuff, man, it's like... It's like the welfare state, right? Everybody gets something for nothing. What a deal is that? Nobody can beat that. But Jesus, and we're told this early in John's gospel, knew what was in the heart of men. He knew his rejection was coming. He knew people did not really understand who he was, nor would they accept what his divine mission was. And when God lets people off the hook, They may carry on as though nothing happened. They feel absolutely right in their decision, don't they? We all know people who have just rejected the gospel outright. Maybe they play along for a while. And then when they reject it, when they leave the church, they're full of self-righteousness about it usually, right? I've sought through this. I'm smarter than you. You're still falling for this. You're still drinking the Kool-Aid. But sooner or later, they're going to realize their folly. Hopefully, in this life. If not, they will realize it at the judgment day. It'll be too late. And with the children of Israel, they realized it sooner. With the nation of Israel, it was a case of being blind. To this day, even, generally speaking, when we're talking about national Israel, physical Israel uh, as a whole. So the divine tease is designed to confirm the faith of those who stand the test against the odds. Against the odds. Isaiah tells us Jesus being like a root out of dry ground. Jesus was a a divine setup in this way. Israel had preconceived ideas based on layers of tradition, not scripture, of what the Messiah would look like. And any leading Pharisee or scribe would say, if the Messiah turns up, I'll know him. Well, this is how these guys got into these positions, right? They got up, you know, as leaders in the council or had uh, schools where they were attracting students in. They were the gate 
gatekeepers of this knowledge. This, the hope of Israel was this Messiah. And it was their job, their duty, their blessing from Yahweh to be able to recognize the Messiah and point the people to him or point the Messiah to the people. You've got to wonder which side of the power play did they think they were on. To this attitude, God says, oh, really? You will know your Messiah, huh? Well, let's see. Let's see about that. Isaiah, writing, of course, much earlier than the time of Christ, centuries and centuries earlier, had that sinking feeling that the people of Israel would not be prepared nor recognize their Messiah. Isaiah 53.1 says, Who has believed what he's heard from us? Us, the prophets, the anointed spokesmen for God. Who would believe what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Of course, to, in Isaiah's voice, us, the prophets. God has revealed these things to us. We're not making them up. This isn't me as Isaiah saying this. This is the word of the Lord. And Isaiah writes, he's not going to look like what you imagine he's going to look like. 53.2, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Now, those of you that are gardeners, what's a root out of dry ground look like? It, it, it doesn't have, it's not, there's, life is not promising in it, is it? it it's dry. It's, it's kind of like lifeless. What is it good for? It's good for the trash heap, basically. Isaiah even saw how Israel would rationalize the rejection of Messiah. He said, he writes, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Matthew says, indeed, at that very hour for which the Messiah had come, Matthew in 27, 25 says, all the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. They wanted him dead so wildly, so ravenously. It's like, yeah, you know, we will be responsible and our children will be responsible for it. And responsible for it they were. Israel, notably the religious leaders who were entrusted in guiding the people in the way of righteousness that God had decreed for them and in preparing and accepting the Messiah that was to come, their Savior, they failed the test. We see this in Christ's words in Matthew. O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her, her wings, but you were not willing. And in Luke, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. Let me interject here. We recognize what Jesus is, is foretelling here, don't we? The Roman army's assault and siege of Jerusalem that's going to occur in 68, 69, and 70, resulting in the destruction of the city and the death, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian, of a million plus people. The murder of men, women, and children. 
going on, Jesus' words, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave, you, leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And in these passages prior to them, you know, we always need to look at the context. Who is Jesus addressing? He's addressing the religious leaders the scribes, the Pharisees. This is who he is addressing now in these prophecies. This is what you have brought upon yourselves. But there's a small group, really, of only 11 men and some women that passed this test. The inner band, all of them, except for Judas Iscariot. After the hard sayings of Jesus in John chapter 6, most of the people turned back and no longer followed him, according to John. They're following the odds that he was not even worth following. Just write them off. And Jesus says to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This has been revealed to these rough men and hidden from the educated elite that sit on the council, the Pharisees, the scribes. So Jesus' teaching in the synagogue of Capernaum revealed things that were not acceptable to those who were attracted to Jesus for human reasons. This hard teaching of Jesus was a divine setup to separate the good grain from the chaff, the stuff that gets thrown out. The twelve, except for Jesus, passed. Most did not. And these, the life and times of Jesus that are recorded in the Bible are, are full of disguised testings. No, testings. Not teases. Now we're getting into, what's this tease all about? We're getting into testing. Example, Mary and Martha. Jesus allowed Martha to feel fully justified in her indignation that she did all the hard work while her sister Mary just sat at Jesus' feet. Jesus says in Luke 10, but Martha was distracted with much serving and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. So he's encouraged her. All of us, really, don't feel guilty about spending time alone with the Lord. And even those that follow, even those that are made righteous through Christ, Matthew 25, he tells a parable. And in this parable, he reveals that those who are affirmed by the triune God, those that are made righteous through the, the God's economy, will actually, many of them, be surprised on that great day. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And, de- and when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now it goes on. He gives the example of those 
who are rejected, they give the exact same rationale for not recognizing Jesus when dealing with the stranger. Don't hold us. We didn't see you. We didn't know it was you. If it was you, you can, you can be assured we would, have done, we would have acted differently if we knew it was you. But we didn't. We thought it was a stinky guy. It was gross, so we ignored him. The stranger, the, hung, the hungry person, the sick, the persecuted, all are part of this divine tease, this testing. James tells us in his, his letter, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The divine tease... Kendall says, is mirrored in those we could so easily dismiss as being unauthentic for our tastes. Paul's enemies, for example, seized on the fact that he worked with his hands to support himself. There is, as the King James Version says, the angel unawares, do not forget to entertain strangers. So, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it, from Hebrews 13.2. So the person near you, the person we encounter, may be a setup by God to get your reaction to God's own enterprise. God knows your heart. Sometimes we don't know our own hearts. That's Kendall's point. And that the stranger reveals our own hearts to us and to others. I'm sure all of us, I know I have, had those situations where you walk away from an encounter with someone you don't know and you realize that you mishandled it. You didn't deal with it in the way that the Lord would have you deal with it. That's not so much a failure of this test as a revelation. Like the Lord wants us to learn from that. And, and, and that's the learning point right there when we walk away and realize, oh, man, I blew that one. I should have done this. All of, it's, all of this, our life is a learning process, right? Our sanctification involves learning. We're not going to be perfect in it. God is gracious that he, he teaches us in these moments. The list is endless as to how we're being set up by God to let us see what we're like. There's example after example. Joseph, had he succumbed to the offer of Potiphar's wife, would he have risen to be the second in command of Egypt? I don't think so. I don't think it would have gone well for him if the captain of Pharaoh's guard had found out he was in dalliance with his wife. And how about Moses in the wilderness when God suggested to Moses that God destroy the Israelites and start over with Moses, what did Moses do? He, he cried out, no, he pleaded with God to save the Israelites and to forgive them. Well, this is what God desired, decreed, that was to happen, right? It was to reveal to Moses who he really was to the people of Israel, that he was 
to stand for them with God, that he was to lead them in God's deliverance out of slavery. This was a wake-up moment for Moses, not a wake-up moment for God, not God thinking, you know what, that, yeah, he's, he's, Moses got a good point, I shouldn't kill them all, I'll rethink this. No, God is like, very well, my child, very well done. This is what I want you to see. You are seeing what I intend for you. To know, Moses to know that his heart was for the people God had called him to lead. A third example, as we wrap up, is trouble, tribulation, and persecution. This one can hit home for us. We can sense this sort of thing in our times, right? Even though maybe we're not experiencing it to the fullness that our, our brethren in times past have. Times of testing reveal how faithful we are, whether we will persevere or give up. The Lord already knows the answer to this. The answer is for us and for those around us, for our brothers and sisters. Your brothers and sisters need to know that your faith is such that you can persevere with them. We stand together. We're not lone rangers. That doesn't work anywhere. The dif- there's a difference also between testing and temptation. James, in his letter, tells us this difference. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. He's not earning it, right? God has promised this. James goes on, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is fully, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Paul weighs in on this. Paul tells us, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to, to endure it. So temptation happens to everybody. Just because you're tempted doesn't mean you're a failure, that you're not a true Christian. We all face the temptation. God promises, though, for us a way of escape. This promise is for believers, for God's elect, right? This promise is not given to every single person. It is not given to the eternally reprobate. They are not promised a way of escape from the sin that they are tempted to. We see people, before they've come to faith, who eventually come to faith, that have been given a means of escape, where God, in his mercy, in his grace, knows that this is one of his elect and provides a way of escape out of a deadly, sinful situation, deadly in a spiritual sense. Satan is the one who's called the tempter. The Lord, our God, is not the tempter. But we are each responsible for our decision to fall to temptation. Kendall goes on with many, many examples of this. 
But I think we'll stop there. I, I hope that you, you get the sense. And if we start, as we started off, if you felt like I did when I started reading this chapter, it's like, I don't know. I'm not comfortable with, you know, talking about God teasing me. But then you see where Kendall led to, to testing and to temptation. I think that's, those are important things for us to consider. And the fact, you know, why does God do what he does in our lives? Well, for the same reason he did it in the disciples' lives, in the, in the prophets' lives, in the, in, the, in the later New Testament church, the church fathers in their lives. So I hope that was profitable for you. I hope it brought something into your thinking that you can chew on for a while. And with that being said, let me close in prayer. We'll have a, about an 11-minute break before you get to hear me talk more. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for the perseverance that you give us, the assurance of our faith that we have. Father, thank you for... Um, giving us escape from temptation that the tempter brings to us, Father. And Father, help us to understand. Give us, give us greater discernment, Father, through the Holy Spirit that we can discern the testing in our lives, that we know it's from you and that we profit from it, Lord, that we understand it, that it helps us gain spiritual strength and spiritual maturity and helps us in our relationship with our brothers and sisters, that we may strengthen them also as iron sharpens iron. Father, bless this, the, the coming hour, and we ask for a blessing upon Pastor Steve as he preaches now in Lawndale. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.